Hello and welcome to Taking Social Stock. This is episode 11. Taking Social Stock is a weekly show hosted by me, Andrew. And me, Heather. And this week we're recording on November 18th. Uh, episode should be out tomorrow on the 19th, which puts us one week away from Thanksgiving. It's wild. This year will be a little different considering, well, we have a pandemic. Yep. And it's out of control right now. That's going to change our plans a little bit this year. Yeah. Yeah, typically, I guess for about the past 10 or more years, we've had my parents over and my brother and his partner and now their kids. And so we're not going to be doing that this year in light of the pandemic. So it's going to look quite a bit more sparse around our table. Yeah. I think like a lot of Americans out there, this has been a very divided uh, November. Yeah. So in some ways, it's good that we won't be around your family because we do have uh, opposing political views. It would have absolutely been a difficult uh, holiday. It was last year. It has been for, but there's always some kind of conversation, right? But this would have been quite a bit different. And so, um, yeah, yeah, we will not, we won't be having that this year. And to get away from covid which is really like there's so many things we could talk about with COVID. Yeah. It's like a fabric of our, well, the world right now. So I would encourage if you, well, this episode won't be about COVID, but if you're interested in some really crazy stories going on, I suggest you Google El Paso Mm -hmm. in COVID, see what's going on there, and also just read some of the stories from nurses in South Dakota and North Dakota. It's kind of nuts. But this week... You were watching some TV last night, and that inspired your selection? Yeah, I was going to go a different route, but I was watching Drunk History, which is a... I like the show a lot. There was the One of the segments was on the occupation of Alcatraz. That jogged my memory. I, I learned about that not long ago, probably within the last year. So I read this book called They're There. It's by Tommy Orange. It's a novel. It deals with a bunch of different characters and intersections but they're all native individuals and um, one of the things that they talk on is the Alcatraz occupation I don't think I'd ever heard of that before there was uh, again the segment on drunk history talking my memory of like hey this would be I think particularly interesting especially given that it's close to Thanksgiving time yeah and I can remember when I first heard of it because it was last night <laughs> I don't know a whole lot about the topic. I've read quite a bit today, but just the story itself of the occupation, there's kind of a a lot of stuff that happens, and I think a lot of it is probably even the information you can find now because it lasted 19 months. After the first Mm -hmm. couple months, some of the original leaders left, and I think kind of from there, it's really murky what happened, and I think what happened is kind of whitewashed. Mm -hmm. But I think we'll just start by getting into it. There's a lot of articles out there. We'll link some information in the show notes as usual. I just recommend if you're interested in the topic, use that as a starting point. Mm-hmm. What, what can you tell us about what led up to the occupation of Alcatraz and then you know, what was the o- occupation of Alcatraz? A little bit of grounding. The article title is Native Americans Honor 50th Anniversary of Alcatraz Takeover. The 50th anniversary was last year. The article was written in 2019. So that takes us back to 1969. It actually, the what kicked it off started a few years before that. So it was in the earlier 60s 
like 1963, Alcatraz closed. And then I think about a year later, it became known as like federal surplus land. Basically, from what I gather, government's not really using it, but still theirs technically. So this social worker named Belva Cartier, she read about the closure of Alcatraz, remembered there's this this treaty called the Treaty of Laramie. It was a treaty between the U.S. government and the Lakota tribe. And it said that, okay, if a government um, abandons a property, retires a property, isn't using a federal property, it can be reclaimed by Native people. So she and her cousin, they started earlier in the 60s trying to get on the land and saying like, hey, the governments can still use it, but this is ours had some uh, protests, but it really didn't go hugely anywhere then, but that's where the seeds were planted. Then in 1969, so this is Alcatraz, this is in the San Francisco Bay Area, right? Yeah, the prison. There's a movie called The Rock. The Rock, yeah, yeah. And so in 1969, at San Francisco Indian Center is what it was called. So again, we know we use words like indigenous people and, and native today, but then it's called it was called Indian, so that's what it was called, San Francisco Indian Center. It was the American Indian Center. Okay. Okay, yeah. so I saw something else. So that'd be good. They're to- in San Francisco. Okay, gotcha. And the the group, the people, I guess organizers who operate out of that office mm-hmm. was the Indians of all tribes. So it was yeah. kind of you know, it's a metro area, so it's a gathering of all kinds of different tribe mm-hmm. people who are coming together under you know, the indigenous people kind of banner and trying to push forward things to help all tribes. Yeah, yeah. And when we hear like center, typically where my mind goes, it's like, oh, it's a community center. It's a gathering place. It is, but it was much more than that. It's where people could get, I believe, healthcare, jobs, all legal services. So it was huge for that community. And remember, this is a community that this this is a, a population that has never been treated well. So this was very, very important. So it burns down. That causes a catalyst of a takeover of Alcatraz. Um, And that's where really we pick up. There were, I believe, 75 to 85. I know I'm a little off on numbers there, but the first wave of people who went there. Yeah, actually, Richard Oakes Mm -hmm. is kind of the main figurehead of the Mm -hmm. movement. It wasn't the first, he didn't go there just once. He okay. actually went originally, so there there were three o- occupation attempts of Alcatraz. Oh, what was the, the third one? This is the third one. The okay. first one was in 1964, lasted like all Belva. four hours. Yes, this is the one, yeah. And then Richard Oakes went basically by himself uh, November 9th, I think it was. So just days, like weeks before they actually go out and start this 19-month occupation. Oh, okay. They went out there for just a little while. So, so I think it was right after the fire yeah, then. They made their claims. Basically, I think it was like November 9th. The fire was in October. And they kind of, that's what the first demands were. Then they like immediately left. Came back with 14 people. The, basically, then they rallied people from college campuses mm-hmm. who were urban yeah. students to say, hey, come join this movement. Yep. Which makes sense. Like the 70s. 60s, 70s, there's a lot of that kind of thinking on colleges. and so Civil they, rights, yeah. Yeah, so they gathered up some students and they brought, ended up bringing like another 80 of her, but a lot of them were actually stopped by the Coast Guard on their way to the island. Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, I, there were a few kids, I think like six I read, 
something I also read was, okay, so you have Richard Oakes, who is probably, if somebody starts looking into this, they're going to see that name maybe the most. There are two other people who were also known to be figureheads in it. One is a woman named Lenata Means, and another man, another person is a man named John Trudell. So Lenata, I learned that she, one of the things I read was she was the first person on the island and then the last person off at the occupation. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I but that. I say I read it because it's, I'm learning so much about this still. There's, it's, it's fascinating. But it really caught my interest because as women, I was like, well, if that is, if that's true, that's also not surprising because John Trudell and Richard Oakes, they got more focus from the media as well. Trudell is all, so Lenata, she was the first native woman to go to Berkeley and John Trudell, he, um, he just said a few years ago, Lenata still alive. Trudell, he passed away of cancer, I think like five years ago. He co-founded like a hemp foundation with Willie Nelson. So these just very fascinating people. I think he's the one in one of the videos that you'll find who like was the radio operator, kind of like operating a rebel radio station rec- trying to recruit people oh. to come join them on the island yeah I, I, it sounds like you're learning more about it than i than i am that was just from a little video <laughs> okay um richard oaks too he sadly he was killed i think just a couple years after the occupation ended um i guess air quotes allegedly but it is a white supremacist who killed him yeah he was uh the guy who shot him well he was shot by a white man and the guy got off basically as self-defense. So nothing happened. He was let off. Richard Oakes was unarmed. So mm-hmm. he didn't have a weapon. So yeah, that's not surprising because that would have been back in you know the 70s. He died in 72. So that's when that happened. The occupation went from Oct- or November 1969 through like June, was it? I think June yeah, of like 1971. Mid-June. Oh, so side note, like you said, it's the 18th. Tomorrow's the 19th. It's... November twentieth, nineteen sixty nine. So we're we're really right at the same time as the the twenty first, twenty first no fifty first anniversary. And one thing to note too with Richard Oakes when he left, so he was kind of I don't from the things I read you don't hear as much about the other two members Mm-mm. like the leadership, but they were all there for a while. He was kind of viewed as the chief and the leader, mm-hmm. but the way they're. I the group who lived there worked everything was supposed to be unanimous when they decided to do things. They okay. set up a whole society, you know, they had sanitation, they had education, they were doing all the things to take care of where they lived, which is crazy to me that there was electricity, there was water, there was yeah. everything they needed to live there yes. was being footed by the government, the US government still, which becomes important later on. Yeah. But he was there until like January 1970. So he didn't actually stick around too long. His stepdaughter yes. fell down a stairwell, fell three stories. She died. Horrifying. Shortly after he leaves. When he left, things kind of fell apart because there was no real leadership mm-hmm. anymore. There were two factions. They were not really working together as much as they were when they had leadership, even though everything was supposed to be by yeah. unanimous vote. It was a bunch of tribes coming together, which is huge. So I, you might have read more about this. I don't know if, what the, the faction issue was, but I would imagine you bring... A bunch of people together living on the rock. There are bound to be some difficulties along the way. Yeah, and when they started out, it seems like it was more activist. Uh-huh. And yes. some students, the students pretty quickly left. And everyone was being replaced then by 
I mean, basically people from what it seems mm-hmm. who were impoverished. Okay. So they were finding this as another place to go and yeah. stay. It's San Francisco, something you think about. Hippie culture was big there. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's not mentioned in a lot of the articles, but from what I could see, it looks like they actually pulled in quite a few whites and they were living on the islands. These hippies basically also moved in and were living in the space with them. They would have been invited in. Yeah, they were invited in, but they were also just seeking it as like a refuge and like, hey, something cool to do. Mm. So that kind of erodes the leadership and kind of like the movement, I think. Mm. And a lot of these hippies apparently, and this is where I think some whitewashing comes in. Mm -hmm. Reporters said like drug use and things like that started getting kind of out of control. Maybe. I mean, it's... San Francisco in 1970, mm-hmm. but I also think that's a way maybe to kind of peg these people as yes. more villainous because they start losing... Or delinquent, yeah. Yeah, well, they start losing steam with the media after Richard oh, Oaks leaves. Oh, okay. Like, it starts kind of going downhill to get less press. He's also doing things in other places. Activist. He's an organizer. He's yeah. an activist, yeah. So he was getting press in other places, yeah. and it just kind of, like, drug on. It seemed like people lost interest. Yeah, and it's not the the media culture where we're seeing things in real time. They're also a minority group. So I would imagine while the, you know, air quotes shine, once that wore off, they were on to something else. Now, this all this to say, though, this was a pivotal, pivotal time in changing dynamics for the agency, the self-determination of Native peoples. We have to remember that the last boarding house, kind of like the assimilation house. So the government paid religious orders to educate. I I use that term loosely. It was to strip Native people of their culture, but to assimilate them into those schools. That didn't close until mid, the last one closed mid to late 70s. That reminds me of something very interesting I read. This was kind of like a minor touch point, but this is not the first time the indigenous peoples have lived on Alcatraz. Oh, okay. Now, tribes over time used it for all kinds of different stuff as a place to seclude, as a place just to fish, but it kind of varied in what it was used for, but tribes have used that land in the past, so that's not a first thing. Before or after? Before. Before all this, before the U.S. built San Francisco there. Okay. So it had been tribal land way before, and they used it as a resource, but one thing that they did mention it was used for was to get away from missionaries (laughs) missionaries <laughs> it was <laughs> to seclude themselves from being uh, assimilated yes. into christianity yes oh my so gosh. you know not the first time no yeah and it seems like it would they they would have known the land the waters because i looked it up it's like a 15 minute ferry ride obviously to, they didn't have ferries at that time but it is like foggy at times maybe some choppy waters yeah that's why i question the stories of it like what they exactly use the land for. I could see it being like a place that you get outcast to, like let's mention Survivor, Redemption oh, Island <laughs> or Exile Island. Survivor but no, stop with you. I don't I don't know that it was an important piece of land. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, the fog and the conditions, it's it's not his hospitable, you know, it is kind of a rocky outcropping. So you can't do a lot there. Mm-hmm. And it would be tough to even though you could row a boat out there, it's pretty far offshore. Yeah. Fifteen minute ferry ride, that's gonna take a long time, manual power. Yeah. But by rights, whether it was hospitable or not, if they valued it, it was theirs. And sure. uh, at the at the height of it, it was like four hundred people lived there in that in that space together during that 18, 19 month time frame. I think that four hundred must have happened in the early days before Richard Oaks left, based on what it says. Like they quickly kind of eroded, and 
I guess before we get into the decline and yeah. what led uh, them leaving, talk about why they did it. Obviously, they had demands. So you mentioned it was a very pivotal time. They're trying to get away from this being assimilated into mm-hmm. U.S. That was kind of our stance was assimilation. It's uh, all and that we had determination, done at that point. Yeah. yeah, determination by the U.S. government yes. for them to a period of self-determination, yep. which does come around, but not in Richard Oak's lifetime. But their demands were, they're not crazy, but you know they're not going to get them. Their demands were the deed to the land, uh, a university, college basically, a cultural center, and a museum. And the government just said no to all accounts. They do, in the end, actually get almost all these things. Mm -hmm. They were offered a different fort, Fort Miley, which is in the San Francisco area. They do eventually get a, a piece of land that they build a university on. But as far as this goes, and at that time, they said, not a chance. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about glass beads? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, Richard Oakes. I you love can, this. You can find this video out there of his interview. Part of his demand was he says, this is what we want, and we will pay you $24 in glass beads, which is what Manhattan was bought for. I th- I think it was the Dutch. I don't know who bought the land from the, the native people, but that was the purchase price for Manhattan, which was like... 47 cents per acre and what they're offering for alcatraz the same 24 dollars in glass beads works out to be like uh or like a dollar 50 for <laughs> per acre so hey they're giving you some inflation <laughs> oh. and it's actually you know way less useful land than yeah. manhattan was yeah there there was there were pivotal points in it one of the things i want to talk about is what that meant in terms of national recognition from the president but did you want to share anything before that? No, go okay. for it. So in 1970, this is the first time ever, President Nixon says that forced assimilation was over. Now, we know that really it wasn't policy in action takes time. Uh, way too long a lot of times it feels like. But it, again, because it wasn't until the mid to late 70s, um, I believe that the final boarding house was was closed. It was pivotal because that's the first time a president ever, by saying the forced assimilation is ending, it's an acknowledgement that this was something that was wrong and it had to stop. This whole situation was really pivotal in active self-determination. Is that what it was called? Mm, I don't know. Oh, dang it. I'll we'll look that up. But there was the, the first time that Native I'm losing my mind here. I was given the recognition that it's it's going from assimilation to, like you said earlier, to self-determination. And that was a big, big moment. Yeah. And I mean, a key part of it is they didn't have control over their schools or mm-hmm. a lot of the federal services that are offered mm-hmm. on their sovereign lands. Yes. So this, w- the purpose was, you know, to take that control. Also at this point, like, uh, I think there's an office like the Office of Native Affairs, something like that. I don't know the name of the office, but... There is an office in our government that's supposed to handle the relations. Up until that point, there was no native person representation, no Indians yeah. on that worked in that office. So yeah. part of it does change when they get the treaty changed. Someone does get hired to that office, which hopefully starts a chain of better things for them. I, d- I don't know. I don't know who the person was or what the outcomes were, but at least that's a step. This is, this is also a time where it's bringing together different ways the different tribes and different ways of making change. So you have people before who would maybe kind of go the slower path. And then you have these 
different groups, youth-led movements, which is really what Richard Oakes was a part of that says, no, we're going to demand change. And here's what we expect. That really, all these coming, these people coming together, it yielded success in terms of bringing international attention as well to how America, the American government had treated Native people. And that was also, and I think that was for the first time really in modern history that that happened, that Natives were treated with somewhat of respect and looked at seriously. So there was, this moment was, was really, really pivotal. Uh, one thing that I find very interesting about all that is you have these different groups. They are going for different strategies. Different but, groups being tribes or? Well, the different, like the different methodologies of okay. trying to institute change. Gotcha. At the end of the day, they had no say in it. It comes down to if our government jumps on board and fortunately, to some degree, they did. There's still lots of issues. And now they're becoming new issues because the land we forced them to mm-hmm. is now the land that we're realizing, holy cow, that's where all the gas, that's where the oil, that's where all the gold is. So there's all these natural resources on the land that we, the U.S., not we, me and you, forced the native populations onto mm-hmm. is now actually the land that businesses want. Yeah. And when things, you know, we've seen this over the past few years, if things don't go the way that those in power want, the people who are protesting, they might just get hit with, uh, was it like, was it not potato bullets, but like rubber bullets or slammed with really heavy water pressure from like fire hoses, that kind of thing. Um, I actually think that for several years ago, the first protest I went to, it was around an energy company that had not made good on its treaty for Native people. So they came and I wound up going to one to observe a speech for one of my classes and then wound up going and once I had a little more understanding, wound up in the, the protest itself. So this is, you know, sharing that to say that private businesses, the government, this is, st- like you said, still an ongoing thing and it is still brutal. Sometimes it may, sometimes it is violent physically, but sometimes it's also violence against their finances and broken promises. Yep. I mean, we've put them in a situation where all these natural resources that sit on their land, they're not capable of harvesting mm-hmm. and selling and bringing to market. Uh, you see a similar thing happening in Africa with a lot of these countries that are not developed to a point where they have the infrastructure to export mm-hmm. the resources under their land. So you have China and Russia and other countries coming in literally building roads for the sole purpose of tearing those resources out and leaving with them for pennies on the dollar. Shift gears a little bit away from that. So they have the occupation for basically the first few months. Richard Oak's kind of heading it up. The team's there. Things start to fall apart. The government's stance on the whole issue was, well, we're just not going to get involved. We, they were intercepting people as they came to it, but the FBI the Coast Guard, no one was really supposed to directly interfere with Alcatraz itself. Yes. But eventually they got tired of it and interest was waning, so they cut off the water supply. The government did. The government did. Mm-hmm. And this was in in June of 1971. Well, I guess backtrack a little bit. They got the approval to do all this stuff um, from the government, I think, May 1970. They cut off the, po- the phones and the power and... And this is a year before they actually leave. But that was it. They cut off the power and the phones. 
and then nothing happened. There were still mm-hmm. people there. They were like, why aren't they leaving? They stayed four hours once and they stayed like a day the next yeah. time. What are they doing? And this isn't the only place that they've done this where they've taken, where native populations have enacted this treaty to take over federal property, abandoned federal, federal property. But in 1971, two oil tankers crashed in the San Francisco Bay. Okay. And it's widely acknowledged that it had nothing to do with there not being, because there's no power at Alcatraz, so there's no light anymore to mark it as a hazard. There's no horns, there's nothing. But it's widely acknowledged that the crash had nothing to do with Alcatraz. It was the incentive. It was enough for them to say, ha, now we can make a plan to go. It was an excuse. It was an excuse. So Nixon did order, gave the green light to develop a uh, plan to remove them from from the location. And this would be a year or less after he said, no more forced assimilation. Yeah. Yes. Well, at this point, it's they're trying to say, well, it's it's dangerous, mm-hmm. you know. So they send the federal marshals, the FBI, and the special police force to evict them. And at this, when they finally evict them in June 1971, I think part of it is they knew the end was coming, but also there were just fewer people there. People had lost it's interest. It's like 15 people. Yeah, it was 15 people, 11 adults, four children. Oh, wow. But I didn't know it was they kids. only had... They had no water. They had no power. They had no phones. There were no cell phones. Yeah. They had no good way to communicate with anyone. So even if they don't have a boat to leave, like they're not in good shape. There's not land you can really use there yeah. for the most part. So that's when it ends. Ni- June 1971, they finally leave. But like we kind of foreshadowed before, it did lead to them actually getting land. Um, can I, wait a minute here, though. Wasn't there a mysterious fire? There was a fire. The fire happened in like the day after or three days after they shut off the water. And I think that happened in 19, sometime in 1971. They shut off the water and then yeah. then there's a fire. Yeah. Well, obviously, they're not going to bail water out of the ocean and or the bay and be able to put yeah. it out. So it ruined a couple of historic buildings and burnt itself out, basically. And there's technically nobody has been found at fault for that. But there is there are some thoughts that it might have been the government. Yeah, and that's part of where the hippies mm-hmm. and white people actually living on the island comes into play because that'd be a way to infiltrate. It'd be uh-huh. tougher probably to find undercover agents who are Native American. Yeah. But if you have other white people on the island that aren't just press, and the press at this point even had made claims of getting attacked on the island, that it was unsafe. There wasn't many people left mm-hmm. there other than hippies who wanted to be there and then these 15 tribes people. Yeah. Oh, so wait a minute. So it was a 15... 15- natives and then unknown number of other people that they just focus on okay the removal of the tribe people everyone else is just criminals because they're you know gotcha they're u.s citizens on federal property yeah boy oh boy okay so 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 i wanted to touch on that but so they they're getting them off the the land and then what well they do eventually i don't know when they get the land that they eventually receive that they build their university and their cultural center on but a couple years later, 1971, so they had already started the process in Congress of trying to get some legislation passed yeah. to give them self-determination. That finally passes in 1975. So in a way, they, they achieved their goal. Not in the way they expected, I think. The land they probably got possibly better because it's not on an island. And historically, it hasn't been what, like you'd said, what is considered at the time to be prime real estate that they... No, of course not. Are given. So one interesting thing, um, did you have anything else about? No, I want to talk about like what they do there nowadays. Okay. Bef- 
I want to deviate slightly okay. before we get to that because obviously Richard Nixon was the president yeah. at the time. So he kind of won favor before his 1972 re-election and yeah. then not too long later he gets he re, uh, resigns from office. One interesting thing though when I was looking at that, I didn't know that Nixon, this is something because of our elections I've seen learned more about. Nixon ran for office a couple times. He didn't win his first time. Okay. So he was originally vice president. He runs in 1960 for office and he lost. He so he is the vice president at the time, runs for president, he loses the election to John Kennedy. Yes. And this is what was very interesting because I saw this and I was like, wow, it's so what's going on today, but also slightly different. So when he runs, if you look at the electoral map, it's crazy too because he's a Republican, wins California, Kennedy is a Democrat, wins Texas, which looks very foreign to Mm -hmm. our current maps. Mm -hmm. Kennedy wasn't expected to win, but he's this young, rich, charismatic guy. Handsome. And... They were very confused whenever he won, I think it was like Illinois and some other state. Uh-huh. Nixon believed and people believed there was election fraud. Uh-huh. And uh, if I can find the quote here, there's an article that came out in 2000 about this situation because in 2000, that's when Gore Bush happened. Yeah, the hanging chads. Yeah, yeah. so the election was very close between Nixon and Kennedy. It was like 100,000 votes difference oh, total. Kennedy won the electoral votes by a landslide. Okay. Barely won the popular vote. But yeah, so it was a very close election by that metric. But I think it's like Illinois and Tennessee go the other way. And Nixon, when he's not even paying attention to what's going on at the election, he went out to get food, Mexican food. <laughs> he's driving back, not paying attention to the early votes, gets to his the LA Ambassador Hotel to find out how the election's going. Yeah. And finds out that Kennedy seems to be winning it. The uh, TV's call the election for Kennedy. People believe there's voter fraud. And he says, effectively, you can find the quote someplace, that it's better. He's like, I don't, I think I won, but it's better for me to just say, hey, he won the election. It's better for the people. It's better for the world. It's better for our to reputation. Concede? To concede. Whoa. It's better for our reputation <laughs> yeah. with foreign countries for me not to say that this is fraud. Wow. So, and then, of course, he wins the election. And it was the thing you said, 100,000, which is very close. It's yeah. not like 5 million. Or well, it was like, like 32 million votes, 200,000 versus 32 million votes, 100,000. Yeah. So yes, it was a close election, not close in the electoral. Yeah. And he ended up winning an election further down the road by gracefully conceding. And it's interesting because he was a vice president who thinks that he got, there was voter fraud in his election. We have a vice president who just won president. Yeah. So a lot of similarities, but the way it was handled and this was the first time, too, that there was a lot of television coverage yes, of an election. Yes, yes. And I, I remember reading somewhere, and I don't know if this popped up. I know this is sidetracked, but kind of at the same, it's in the same vein. It deals with Nixon, but that um, he he did, he did appeared much worse in one of the um, one of the debates. Like he looked like a floating head or something like that based on one of the, the color shirt in the background or something. And it being for kind of the first time ever a visual kind of in real time representation of a debate that that might not have helped him. Yeah. So interesting, probably never going to come back to that topic, yeah, no. <laughs> but I thought it was something interesting to throw out there just because it's so it's timely, so timely and Nixon is such a key part in what's going on at this time. If you want to look into the, the article about that Nixon election, it's called another race to finish. It's by the Washington post. It came out in 2000. Just Google that. You'll find it. Cool. 
So you had something else you want to say about yes. about this event? Yeah. So fast forward to 2019 last year. So 50th anniversary, big celebration. Some of the initial occupiers went in and were part of the celebration. In fact, in the article that we share, one of the men, his name is Eloy Martinez. He's 80 now, which means he would have been 30 at the time that this happened. And he still seems to be an activist. And and I think it was the first time some of them had seen each other in years or maybe even since the occupation, which makes sense. But there is also a couple yearly celebrations there. So one on Indigenous Peoples Day, which more people are starting to hear of, but almost everybody would be familiar with the term Columbus Day, but it's becoming more and more replacing that with with Indigenous Peoples Day. And then also they do a celebration on Thanksgiving, but what they might call unThanksgiving because Thanksgiving has a, is problematic in terms of different aspects of it. So there's something, I, I don't know what it's going to look like in a pandemic world this year, but it's something where they have these open celebrations where everybody's invited to attend, Native or not, from what I gathered. But it's cool to know that they are still using that land because of that time 50 years ago. Um, but yeah, it's very cool. They still go there. It's a national park. Basically, shortly after they got evicted, it got handed over to the Parks Department, who it seems like from the little I read that they they changed what the story was a little bit to mm-hmm. make it a little more romantic than... It was terrible, I'm sure, to live there with no utilities and being separated from everything. Absolutely. But, I mean, they stuck it out, which is impressive. Yes. Yeah, I don't think it's a way to put it romantic because I've seen that at uh, at least one other museum where I've seen the description of of certain things and I thought, I I don't know if it was actually that good (laughs) that they're describing it. But, um, yeah, so, you know, we, we continue to learn more. We still have a lot more to learn about with Native history. But as we continue to learn more, I know that this year there will be but more discussion and a recognition of what is the holiday, what's the implications of it. And so that's one thing that we can we've got to continue to do this year is learn more. Still have a lot more to learn. Okay, well, I think that's going to do it for today. This was episode 11 of Taking Social Stock. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at takingsocialstock at gmail.com. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Thank you.